Hi everyone, this is Dr. Michael Wald and you're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Today's show topic will be anti-aging laboratory tests. Very, very practical topic. I've done shows before on nutritional interpretation of labs and this will be similar, but I've updated the sorts of tests that I feel that you need to know. A lot of these tests are regular tests that you, you get from your doctor, but you may not know the full extent of what they mean nutritionally. And I can tell you that your doctors generally do, do not know the nutritional meaning of certain non-nutritional tests, I guess I'd call them. Uh, for example, co- cholesterol. Cholesterol is a non-nutritional test in the sense that it's not measuring the level of a vitamin or a mineral. It's cholesterol, so it's non-nutritional, except it is nutritional. What do I mean? What I mean is that if you have an elevated cholesterol, a cholesterol number that's above 200, let's say, this can mean a lot of things. First of all, when you look at your lab work, folks, you should not merely look at tests like cholesterol that are out of the normal range. In other words, cholesterol's range is generally zero to 200. Labs do vary a little bit, but that's essentially it. And that's a pretty meaningless range because that is implying zero to 200 that your cardiovascular risk is generally equal if you have a cholesterol number of 199 or 200 or 150 since they're both or all those numbers are within zero to 200. And of course that defies common sense because it's wrong. Um, But you'll be treated that way at your typical doctor's office unless your numbers are out of the normal range. But being in the normal range on the upper end of the high side, like 198, 199 cholesterol, or being on the low end of cholesterol, let's say less than 160 in fact, can mean some pretty serious health issues. So let me tell you a few of them. If you have a high cholesterol, everyone knows that your risk of cardiovascular disease probably increases exponentially. And then is higher still based on your age. As you get older, your cardiovascular risk increases just based on that. If you're overweight, it increases there. If you smoke, you you increase your risk of stroke and thrombotic stroke and, and heart attack, again, by many, many times. And there are other factors, as you might imagine, that also come into play to increase your cardiovascular risk. But if you have a high cholesterol, it can tell you a lot about nutritional needs. Now, here's a disclaimer. First of all, the information I'm giving you during the show may not be specific for you because right now I'm about to tell you several nutritional issues associated with high cholesterol. But if you have high cholesterol, but you have several of the other tests I'm about to talk about today that are also either high or maybe normal, Compared to someone else with the same high cholesterol as you, but different, a different combination of abnormal tests, your nutritional needs are going to vary, right? So what I'm trying to say here is that each of the nutritional factors that coincide with each of these individual tests that I'm going to talk about give us some idea of what nutritional needs are. But because you're a unique individual, your laboratory tests will be different than someone else. Even if they're slightly different, that can mean major adjustments that need to be made in both diet, nutritional supplements, but also other lifestyle factors from ranging from exercise to sleep. So if you have a high cholesterol, you might have a deficiency of vitamin B3. B3 is niacin. Well, there's actually three different types of B3, but for the purposes of the show, let's just call it niacin. So niacin helps to helps the liver metabolize cholesterol. So when you have a high cholesterol, you should consider vitamin B3. Also, if you have a high cholesterol, 
you might consider lipoic acid, alpha lipoic acid. So alpha lipoic acid is in the B vitamin family and, and also helps the liver's metabolic functions simply work better. And if some of those metabolic functions, particularly those that have to do with high cholesterol, are not working correctly, lipoic acid can help push them in the normal direction so that you can metabolize cholesterol ideally well. And so, so for example, metabolize cholesterol means that if you have cholesterol in your blood, you want your liver to be able to manage that. But also, metabolism means that your liver may be genetically producing too much cholesterol. And that's also something that nutrition can positively affect. So for those of you that have, or you've been told by your doctors that your cholesterol is high genetically, and you're on some statin medication, for example, and if you have not tried the proper nutrition with a licensed healthcare provider that knows the nutritional applications for laboratory work, then you might wanna consider that. Here's one of the main reasons why. If you lower your cholesterol with nutrition and you lower your cholesterol, the identical amount with statin medication, your risk of stroke and heart attack is still much higher in the group that included the drugs. So drugs might lower your cholesterol as much as nutrition, but how you lower the cholesterol matters. Other nutrients that you might wanna think about with high cholesterol are antioxidants. Do you know that cholesterol is an antioxidant itself? Yep. When you have oxidation in your body, oxidation, think of an egg in a frying pan and you turn up the heat. That egg is oxidizing. So now that egg contains different fats, different lipids. Now, if those lipids were in your body oxidizing, you would need certain amounts of antioxidants to prevent those lipids from oxidizing because it's the oxidation of the lipids or the fats, same thing, the oxidation of the fats that make the fats toxic. So if you have a 250 cholesterol or 300 cholesterol, but a test is done that shows that your oxidative stress level is low, and someone else with 250, 300 cholesterol has a test that says their oxidative stress level is high, same cholesterol number, much higher death risk in the person with the high oxidation. So when you have your cholesterol checked, you wanna ask for another test known as MDA. Now this is the time you wanna be getting a pen ready to write some stuff down because we're gonna be talking about some really important things. And I can tell you, you're not gonna listen or read a lot of sources that are gonna go over these, these areas of the nutritional applications of laboratory work as well. And the reason for that is this, I've been studying it for nearly 20 of the 29 years I've been doing this work. I also wrote a 500 page textbook called the Anti-Aging Encyclopedia of Tests and Natural Treatments. And I wrote it for healthcare providers. So I know this topic well. And I'm gonna tell you something else that's a common mistake when reading laboratory tests for nutrition or laboratory tests for just disease, is you have to consider all of the tests together and you have to think about what that full picture means of all the tests. What metabolic dysfunctions do they uh, reveal when with a specific group of tests? As opposed, everyone, it's important you hear this, to over-interpreting a single test alone in your blood as if it exists alone and outside of the rest of your metabolism. No test does exist alone. Now let's back up for a second. Do you know how the normal ranges of blood work are figured out that appear on your laboratory tests to which you are compared? So for example, your glucose level where does that range of glucose, let's say from about 65 to, to 100, where does that range of glucose come from? Who made that up? 
where did your cholesterol normal range, they call it the clinical range, come from? What about your hemoglobin or your serum iron levels or your liver enzymes? All of those tests have clinical ranges attached to them. All laboratory tests do. Now, you should know that different labs may have slightly different numbers of normal clinical ranges to which people are compared to because they use different population groups, but they're really close. They're so close that you shouldn't even think about the differences. Now, I just wanted you to know that because that could be confusing for someone who's looking at laboratory tests and look at, looks at results from one lab and then they get lab at another lab and they say, why aren't the ranges exactly the same? Okay, now you know that. But do you know where the ranges come from? I will tell you. <laughs> the, the clinical normal ranges come from, let's say you're 65 years old and you're, and you're a woman or you're a man, whatever sex you are. They gather a certain number of men and women within a certain age group and they look for the average of the glucose, the average of the cholesterol, the average of the serum iron, the average of the liver enzymes, the average of the renal tests, the kidney tests. So you are compared to average ranges. Average ranges, I'm just letting you know, have sometimes have little to do with healthy ranges. Listen, you know this. We have an ever-increasing rate of degenerative diseases and chronic diseases in the United States. We have more people dying from cardiovascular disease, cancer, stroke, and other diseases than ever before. And it seems as if doctors don't see this coming. Everyone's so surprised. Well, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised because the ranges used are too wide for given age groups of men and women of different ages and different sexes. So we're using these tests. You go for your doctor's appointment. And the doctor says, hey, they're pretty normal. You're good. Take care. Next thing you have a disease or a couple of diseases, what they call a disease cluster. You have six different things going on. And how come that wasn't seen? And a lot of times it's not. Well, the problem is that the average ranges are too wide. They're, they go too much on the low end and too much on the high end. And there's what's called a bell curve. That means, let's say they take 500 people and they say some people, 95% of people's labs, well, the cholesterol number is right here in the center. But think of a hill in front of you. The very top of the hill is the top of the bell curve. And then you have, you can roll down the left side of the hill or roll down the right side of the hill. Now, at the top of the hill is where 95% of people your age fall. That's 95% of 100. So 2.5% may fall down the left side, and the other 25 will fall down the right side. But some people do fall outside of even those ranges. So those are just, the, just how it works. So the bell curve at the top of the hill is set where most people fall. That has nothing whatsoever to do with healthy people. So over the course of uh, about 20 years, I've determined healthy ranges. Some of the ranges that I determined that are healthy were based on my observations of thousands of patients. The healthiest people had certain lab tests results, which often varied sometimes dramatically with what the regular clinical ranges say. See, it's not enough for you guys to get lab tests. You have to know something about how they were determined and what is the normal best number. For example, total cholesterol, do you know what the best number is on average, but healthy average to be, to, to experience the least amount of cardiovascular disease and live longer by offsetting the, the risk of early onset cardiovascular disease. The magic number is 165. Really, it's 165 to 185. That's very different than zero to 200. So very, very important to know that. Okay, so I compare people's labs to the healthy ranges. And I was saying that some of the healthy ranges I did not make up. I learned them from research articles. 
where they will they'll say that this group of people had the least amount of, let's say, hypertension over the course of 20 years of their lives when their um, liver enzymes were within this range, you see, or their magnesium level was this range. Now, I should mention, too, that most vitamin levels and mineral levels in blood are not accurate. A lot of you guys, a lot of you people come to see me and you say, Dr. World, I would like some vitamin. I want my vitamin levels checked. And when it comes to vitamin D3, that makes a lot of sense because it's a water-soluble nutrient and it's actually been correlated with a lot of disease. The lower your vitamin D, the higher your risk of dying of absolutely anything and of suffering more during your life. They call that mortality. Well, morbidity and then mortality is, is uh, when you die. So... Vitamin D has a range anywhere from 30, it's usually 30 to 100. Most doctors say, oh, you're 31, you're good. Others like it to be about 50. But the studies of the most healthy individuals that suffer the least amount of disease say that the best vitamin D level is as high as you can get it within the normal range, 99, 98, certainly no lower than a 70. Now let's talk about some other tests. Tests that, again, you just may never have heard of, but they're on your regular blood tests. These are tests that your insurance covers. One of them is called the albumin-globulin ratio. So if you look at one of your tests, you'll see it abbreviated as A, like apple, with a diagonal slash, and then G, as in George, ratio. A-G ratio. So... That means that it is a ratio, the relationship between two different proteins, albumin and globulin protein. If you have an abnormally high ratio, you may have problems using certain nutrients, getting certain nutrients and drugs to your organs because albumin is a carrier of these different nutrients and compounds. But if your albumin is low or low normal, that also means something very important. It actually tells you about your liver function. You might say liver function. Where'd that come from? I thought my liver enzymes tell me liver function. Okay, you want to be really smart? Repeat after me. You ready? My liver enzymes do not tell me anything about my liver function. The reason they don't is because liver enzymes are enzymes. When liver cells die off, and they're doing it all the time, but if they die off more, let's say because of hepatitis, liver inflammation from hepatitis C, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, medications can cause hepatitis, viral infections can cause hepatitis. Those are just some causes of liver inflammation. The enzymes will spill out into the blood and the liver enzymes increase. But your liver still may be functioning just fine. So liver enzymes are known not to be liver function tests, but they are called liver function tests or LFTs, liver function tests. But there are other tests of liver function. For example, if I mentioned low albumin, albumin is made by the liver. So if you have low albumin, guess what? Your liver is not functioning well enough to make albumin. It's that simple. Laboratory work is complicated, don't get me wrong, but there's some very simple things that if you know them, you're, you're going to probably live better and possibly even longer. Now, the globulin part of the albumin-globulin ratio has to do with an immunoglobin, which is your immune system. So if your globulin level is low, then you are susceptible to uh, infections and worse and worst expression of that infection in you. So if you have low globulin and you get Lyme disease exposure or any other infection, you already have low immunoglobin, so you're not well protected. So when your body gets slammed with an infection, it's usually worse. And you can take all the antibiotics you want, but if you don't fix that globulin, then there's a problem. Now, the one thing your body needs for the albumin-globulin ratio is protein. So a low al albumin-globulin ratio also can mean that you don't absorb normally. 
everyone's always talking to me about absorption. I've done shows on absorption. But this is a test that means that someone may either not be absorbing proteins because, again, you need protein to make albumin, which is a protein. And you need proteins in your diet, and they must be absorbed to make globulins, which are another form of protein. So if you have low albumin and or globulin, you have low protein. So you might need stomach acid. Wow, that was pretty good, right? So we look at a test. And we figured it's not a, a measure of protein total, uh, protein for example, but it, it, the albumin globin ratio does mean if it's low that you need protein. But you're not what you eat, right? You're what you absorb and what you use. So you might need stomach acid, but you may also need pancreatic enzymes, the protease or protein digesting enzymes. You can take all of the globulin you'd like orally, but that may not be absorbed. So again, low albumin globulin, you need digestive enzymes and or digestive acids. Okay, what's, what about the next test? Let me talk about the ANA test briefly. ANA, anti-nuclear antibody. That's all that means. Anti-nuclear antibody, ANA, that is a lupus test, but it's also a test of other autoimmune problems. And this is where medicine really goes wrong. They defy common sense. It continually amazes me. Look, let's say you have fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue-like mental foggy symptoms, and you've gone to your rheumatologist, and they've done, they will do an ANA test. And they'll tell you, oh, your ANA is elevated, but... Don't worry because a lot of people have it elevated and it doesn't mean anything. Number one, that's the first mistake. A lot of people has, no, have no, has nothing to do with you because if you have chronic symptoms and you have a positive ANA test, I say that that test means something for you. It means that you have some autoimmune problem brewing. Now, the doctors, the rheumatologists, the internists, they may say to you, yeah, it is elevated, but it's not that elevated. So here's what they'll do. They'll do the test again, usually the following week or in two weeks. And then sometimes it's low. I mean, it's actually normal. I'm sorry, it's normal again. And they'll say, see, it's normal. What you should say is, well, why are you valuing the normal test above the one that was abnormal? If you do the test again, it's likely to be abnormal but maybe it could be normal again. What does that mean? It means it's simply fluxing up and down, but eventually it will only be going up all the time. This is the best time to intervene nutritionally to get autoimmune problems handled. And in medicine, they just drop the ball. They simply look at the test and say, yeah, it's not bad enough to give you chemotherapy. And I'm not joking. Many forms of chemotherapy are given for people with certain type of rheumatic problems with elevated ANAs. Now, all the ANA means is this. Think of a cell in your body. It's a circle. Think of a cell as a circle. And then there's another circle in the circle, and that's where your nucleus is. The nucleus is where all the brains of your cells, your cell is. But if you have antibodies, anti-nuclear antibodies, that means that there are, there are antibodies that are attacking the nucleus of your cells. So they are anti the nucleus because of the anti, anti the body. Okay, that's all it means. So a person would be having, okay, if the ANA isn't super high where the doctor says, oh my God, between this and how you feel, I know you have Sjogren's syndrome. I know you have scleroderma. I know you have rheumatoid arthritis or I know you have psoriasis or ankylosing spondylitis or some other lupus, some other autoimmune disease. They might say, well, it is elevated, like I said, but it's not elevated enough. I say before it's elevated a lot where everyone you know jumps through the ceiling saying, oh my God, it's not. It's lower. It's things that are low tend to stay low. Things that are starting to increase start tend to increase. So what nutrition would you need for an ANA test or any um, autoimmune problem? The nutrition that's required has to be based on all of the testing. But I can tell you this, you will need protein because in autoimmune diseases, all of them, the body breaks down itself. It consumes protein. And guess what they call it? Protein consumption. I'm using all the medical terms here for you. And when, you are, when your body eats enough of your lean body mass, 
away. We're talking your organs and your muscles and a person can waste their muscles. This is what happens and their organs as they get older, that's, that is aging. But autoimmune disease is accelerated aging. It's a normal process of breakdown, but it's accelerated. So you need more protein. You need to absorb that protein. You need the stomach acid. You need the pancreatic enzymes. And also, folks, pancreatic enzymes like proteases, those are protein-digesting enzymes. If you take those enzymes away from your meal, I'm going to say it again. This is super important. If you take your digestive enzymes away from your meal by at least 20 minutes, you're going to reduce inflammation in the whole body and autoimmune disease inflammation in the entire body. But if you take your digestive enzymes with your food and you're mixing it up with your food in your stomach, well, that's going to help you digest the food. And what I do with my autoimmune patients is sometimes I have them take their antibodies with food and sometimes I have them take their, their um, I'm sorry, their digestive enzymes away from food so that we get a wide body anti-inflammatory rebuilding effect from enzymes. And then we also have a digestive goal of the enzymes. Each autoimmune disease tends to require some similar nutrition and also tends to require some different nutrition if you read it in the textbook. But when I take an individual and I look at their chemistries individually, even if they all have the same diagnosis, Okay, they're all diagnosed with, uh, again, just as an example, it could be any autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis. I might have com 10 completely different sets of recommendations for all of those 10 people with the same diagnosis because their chemistries are mostly different and they're gonna have at least one thing the same with rheumatoid arthritis. They're probably gonna have, I'll give you two things that'll have the same. One is the ANA, the anti-nuclear antibody. But the most important thing they'll probably have is what's called anti citrulline antibody. That is the best test for rheumatoid arthritis. Okay? What, let's go to another test. Okay, let's talk about the blood types. Blood type A, A, B, B, and O. You know, I describe these in detail in my anti-aging encyclopedia of tests, but let me just dispel a few myths. And the first one has to do with, is there anything to the blood type diet? The answer is there is not. Now, some of you out there are saying, no, there is because I've done it and I've lost weight and I feel better. A person can change their diet any, you know, in any variation uh, of what they were, or they were generally eating and they can feel better. But I can tell you from two decades of observing people who have seen practitioners doing Blood type diets, yes, some of them lose some weight. Almost all of it will gain it back. And when I look at the rest of their labs, this is important for you to hear, they are not good. Dr. Diadamo, and I believe it was the 60s, don't quote me on that, maybe it was the 50s, when he first came up with these uh, blood type things, it, it was fascinating. But there is absolutely no evidence for it. Now, the blood type you know, let's say A, for example, you know, they're going to do well on vegetarian diets, but almost anyone is going to do well on a vegetarian diet. So that doesn't mean the, the blood type connection had anything to do with it. Besides, even if everyone, even if there is something to a single blood type, we're talking one piece of your chemistry relating to foods, you know, one piece of your chemistry being blood type A, one piece of your chemistry being blood type AB, B or O. Why would we want to limit ourselves to one piece of chemistry? I mean, I never look at anything less than sometimes a minimum of 10 and sometimes as many as 100 different pieces of chemistry to figure things out. So it is absolutely overrated, certainly for weight loss, except for type A. And uh, the people that I've observed g gain their weight back anyway uh, at about 12 to 14 months. The next test is called BUN, BUN, B-U-N, blood, urea, nitrogen. So if you have that elevated on your blood work or high normal, see a lot of you are going to forget that I'm saying that, high normal or low normal, it can be in the range but on the high end of the range or the low end, which means it's heading for being clinically high or it's heading for being clinically low. 
in medicine, there is no acknowledgement of that at all. The only things that are looked at are the things that are high and low. This is, um, this is just plain stupid, if you ask me, because no, no one would argue that if something is, is high, it had to be high normal first. And if something is low, it had to be low normal first. So these aren't some wacky, holistic concepts here. This is just common sense, and it's called trends in medicine. But again, when I teach these labs to doctors, um, a good amount of these docs freely admit that they really don't fully understand the labs. I mean, they understand an, uh, enough for disease treatment in their, their areas of specialty for the most part, at least those that I've come across, which um, that's just my, my general experience. But there is not a lot of recognition of high and low end. When I compare a person's labs, when I would take your labs, for example, compare you to healthy people, even when you're compared to average men or women your age, you might have, let's say, normal or pretty normal labs. If I compare you to healthy, well, guess what? Sorry to tell you, but you're going to have lots of abnormalities. Even I would. But if you focus on those, you can really create some health, in my opinion, because you're moving your labs in a level of functionality that's just healthier. So I am almost 53 years old. I'll be 53 in February. And I run marathons, I lift heavy weights, I have no injuries. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was 18. Skin cancer in the form of something called mycosis fungoides beat that. My point here is that I've been keeping my blood work in the healthier range for the most part. That's where I've been shooting for and I'm able to enjoy a much healthier quality of life, particularly when I, I look at people that are sitting before me who are 10, 20, 30 years younger than me, and most people that see me, and again, uh, I know this sounds uh, sort of, uh, I guess, conceited on my end, but people usually think I'm around 36 to 38 years old. You should take a look at my picture on my website, okay? The, my information, by the way, my blood, uh, my blood detective site is where I sell my blood detective nutrients. That's blooddetective.com. But go to intmedny.com. That's intmedny.com. And uh, take a look at my photos. Look at my exercise shots there. Uh, and you will see, I think I have some videos up there of me exercising. Uh, l let me know what you think. It's interesting. Okay, now, I was talking about blood urea nitrogen. If it's elevated, you might simply be dehydrated. And what most people don't seem to know about dehydration is this. That means, that doesn't mean that you can have a big tall glass of water and you're, and you're well hydrated or even drink water, let's say, uh, plentiful amounts, let's say for a day and you're done. Uh, under hydration, uh, particularly if it's been there a while, it could take several days to several weeks to fix. So that's number one. But the other thing is, you might have an elevated bun or blood urea nitrogen, not because of dehydration, but because your intestinal tract is overrun with bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, small intestine, Bacterial, what's the, what's the acronym? S-I-B-O, overgrowth. Small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And what happens is when the bacteria overgrow, they produce nitrogen as a byproduct which gets into the blood. So the blood urea nitrogen increases. And I once said this to a physician uh, during a seminar, a medical doctor, and he told me, he actually said it was ridiculous in front of the whole, it was like 300 people. And I happen to have a, a standard lab textbook right on the stage because I've heard everything. <laughs> okay, so I was ready for this. And um, I was pre I've been preparing for this for 29 years. So I open up to the page of blood urea nitrogen. I hand it to him. I even had it outlined in yellow where it said blood urea nitrogen can be increased by intestinal dysbiosis, which means overgrowth of bacteria. I had him read it. And then everyone just started laughing. Now, I didn't want to embarrass this person. I really was just trying to make a point. But if someone's going to say something at a seminar and have that kind of nerve and that kind of ego to say something that is not e even right, 
uh, then, you know, we need to do something to break that cycle in that individual. And sometimes a little embarrassment will do it. <laughs> okay. How about calcium? This is a good one. So let me, let me dispel some myths. So listen up, please. Number one, calcium in your body, in your blood is very tightly controlled. The body has what's called homeostatic mechanisms to really tightly control blood, blood calcium. So if your blood calcium is either high or low, you have some serious stuff going on. And it's not a joke. Meaning, first of all, calcium is not used to figure out if you have bone loss, osteoporosis, or osteopenia. I'm going to repeat it. Blood calcium levels are generally not used to evaluate whether or not you have bone loss in the form of osteopenia or osteoporosis, okay, which basically are both not just calcium loss in bone, but also protein and other uh, minerals and things. The reason for that is it doesn't co coordinate at all with it. So that's why in medicine, a DEXA scan is used. So a DEXA scan is an irradiating test, either of your low back or of your finger, of, of your wrist, for example, your pelvic bone, to figure out if you have bone loss. I happen to use sonogram bone density testing, which is just as accurate as DEXA scans, but the sonogram does not uh, introduce radiation into the person. There was a, um, a survey of hospital personnel and they asked them, if the bone density using sonogram of the foot is just as accurate as the DEXA radiation testing, why, why won't you use the sonogram test. And the most common response was they did not want to bend down to do the test because it requires you get close to the floor because it's, it's using the foot. See, I don't have a problem bending down doing a test, but this is, this is how medicine sometimes works. It's ridiculous, particularly since we have something like 8% of all cancers in the United States are thought to be from radiation that is from testing, uh, or I should say evaluations in, in, in medicine. And if they're 8% that they know about, I can promise you there's a lot more because I just can't believe that these things are being policed correctly and reported correctly. But 8% is still pretty high. Now, if you have a high calcium, what does that mean? Does that mean you're taking too much calcium by mouth? Almost never. It usually means you're dehydrated. If you're dehydrated, it means you don't have enough fluid in your blood, so the calcium gets concentrated and increases on the test, okay? So dehydration can cause hypercalcemia, high blood calcium, but another cause of high calcium is laboratory error. The testing method was just done wrong, and when that happens and a doctor is not attuned to that by reading the entire test together along with the situation, the clinical information that he or she is getting from the patient and they misread the test, they saying, oh my goodness, it's high, forget about the patient, I don't want to know those details, meaning doctors sometimes forget to properly interpret a lab test result or a group of results in context with what's going on with the person. It sounds like common sense, you know, of course you're going to consider your patient, the person, and say, well, what are your symptoms and problems? And then the test makes sense, relatively speaking. I mean, I've had people come to me with abnormal tests and they have said to me, oh, my doctor says it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. But then they start telling me all these symptoms which do correlate with the test, which means the tests are probably right. We know that when clinical symptoms and signs in a person correlate with an abnormal test, the probability that that test is related or causing that problem is much higher. Again, common sense. But the problem with common sense is, you guessed it, it ain't so common. You know, a few, several years back, my oldest son, uh, he was a high diver and he was in the top 16 in the United States. And I was driving him to the national competition and um, I got pulled over by a, a, a cop. And I, he said, do you know why I'm pulling you over? And he was nice enough. I said, I said absolutely not. He says, well, you, you did not move over a lane because I was stopped on the right side and you're supposed to pull over a lane um, when you pass me. 
And I said, oh, wow, that's, uh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. I said, uh, I didn't know. I apologize. He says, well, you know, it's common sense and they had commercials on this and they have signs on the road. So uh, you should know this. I'm like, but officer, I, um, I almost never drive out of my town and I don't read the newspaper. He, he looked at me a little cockeyed. Uh, he was still very nice. And he said, well, they even are required to print these facts in the local newspaper. I said, I don't read the, no, the local newspaper. Then he was really confused. So he takes my license. He goes back to his car. He says, let me see what I can do. And when you hear that, you know you're, you're screwed because if he wanted to let me go, he would have done it right there. So I knew this was just nonsense. So he comes back and says, I have to ticket you because it's common sense. I'm like, well, you know, officer, with all due respect, common sense is not so common. I did not know it. I did not have this knowledge. So for me, it is not common sense. And therefore, I don't think you should give me a ticket. So he gave me a ticket. Okay. Uh, I wrote all of this to the town, uh, you know, judge. And I, I said, you know, it's not common sense because I didn't know it, blah, blah, blah. And they understood and they let the ticket go. Um, so common sense is a, is a relative thing. And what's so interesting in medicine, and I, I really, uh, this really got knocked home for me when I went to medical school. I mean, I had an idea. I'd been practicing for, uh, you know, a decade or more before I, in, ch- in chiropractic and nutrition, before I went to medical school. And I always had my ideas about how limited and compartmentalized medicine was, but also how brilliant it was. So uh, I wanted to go to medical school because I wanted to have th- any knowledge I might be missing somehow. Uh, so I can apply it to my patients because that's what I felt holistic was, getting gaining knowledge from as many places as possible so I can bring more to the conversation. And um, I was astounded, astounded at the compartmentalization and what that really meant in medicine. I met lots of great doctors um, and, and uh, doctors' professors, but if they were neurologists, they only knew neuro. If they were GIs, they only knew GI. When you talked about a test outside of their field, they, they had heard of it, but they really didn't know it. I mean, I was speaking to a surgeon. He didn't really even understand how to interpret like cholesterol levels very well. I mean, cholesterol and HDL, LDL, and a few other things like super well. So uh, again, it was just astounding to me. So there is this limitation in medicine due to a problem with educational structure. You know, Learning, th- this was in the Talmud, the Talmud said something like, learning is difficult without a structure. If you have a structure in medicine called specialization, slice all the learning up into pieces, GI for this, autoimmune for this, neuro for this, endocrine for this, I get the need for specialists. I don't argue that. But we need better training Doctors need to be trained holistically, not to believe in nutrition. That would be fantastic. But I just meant thoroughly understanding, having a real working knowledge of every single other specialty. I mean, I make it my business to know quite a lot in all other areas of medicine. So I can not only speak to any of these doctors, but that I can understand when testing is done in one area, what they might mean in a so-called, what they might need in, in a so-called other area. So that's, you know, the thing about the testing too is if you know how to read these tests, you can, you can find the right practitioners. And if you just go to some, let's say, holistic doctor and you think they're going to know labs uh, or they're going to know healthcare and a variety of specialties, you better guess again. You need to ask questions. For example, when I did my medical rotation in gynecology, with a holistic gynecologist who was also board-certified gynecologist in medicine. So this was a smart man in medicine and a very smart man in holistic stuff relating to, let's say, female health problems. But when I was with him and someone had abnormalities or health problems that were outside of the gyne area, the gynecological area, he really didn't have much to say. He didn't know what to do. Now, the, the bigger problem was this. Let's say a person did have a gynecological problem like infertility, let's say. He didn't know that maybe malabsorption of, let's say, fatty acids in the small intestine could relate 
to a fertility issue because he didn't know digestive. So it was really a problem. And this is a problem uh, in a lot of uh, so-called holistic areas. People assume holistic people know a lot in a lot of areas. That is not true. You have to question them and you have to know something yourself because if you don't know something about your health problem, when you question others, how are you going to know how to vet them? How are you going to know how to figure out if they are the practitioner for you? So I had someone who emailed me earlier saying, I have a two-year-old with muscular dystrophy and we want to do holistic and can you help? And I said, not only do I know muscular dystrophy well, I can give you a referral to a a family that I've been helping and I'm working on a radio show on that right now, which is actually, of course, true. So um, it takes a lot uh, for you. It's a lot to ask of you to know something about your health issues, but don't just know the holistic. You got to know something about the regular medical. Okay. A couple of other tests. How about, let's see, I'm looking on my list here. Let's see, what would a good one be? Okay. How about ferritin? If you haven't heard of ferritin, ferritin is a protein made by the liver and it can be high and it can be low like every other lab test. If ferritin is high, it can mean two things, basically. Inflammation, or it can mean too much iron has accumulated in the body and it's toxic. If the ferritin is low, it can mean a few things. It can mean that you have low iron storage in the body, or you might have malnutrition or malabsorption, not absorbing protein to make ferritin, therefore it's low. In medicine, if ferritin is high, they know or should know that it can be from the first thing you'll think of is too much iron. Too much iron is accumulated in the body. So you have to correlate the ferritin, the high ferritin level with the serum iron. If the serum iron is also high, that is pretty good evidence of iron storage problems. Then if the iron saturation test is also high, then it means almost 100%, particularly when the ferritin's over 300, that the person has iron, taken too much iron. But it may not be that they've taken too much. They may have a, a, a genetic condition where they store too much. But there is a way to figure out also whether the high ferritin is either from too much iron genetically, too much iron from intake, or too, uh, too much inflammation. All of those look the same on the blood test. They look like high ferritin. So if you have high ferritin, certain types of inflammatory tests need to be done, plus those other iron tests I just mentioned, serum iron, uh, iron saturation, and a few others. I don't want to get too confusing and too into that other than telling you that's a very important test though because it's one of the most important biomarkers of lifespan and health span. You want ferritin values to be about 175 to maybe no lower than about 125. That range is associated with the least amount of oxidative stress overall in the body. At least it's an important factor in assessing that. Next, glucose. We all know about glucose levels. If you have a glucose level, and and folks, you haven't heard this, so you want to listen. If you have not fasted, you've eaten, and you get your blood work, and your glucose is high, let's say it's 115, your doctor says, don't worry about it, you ate, it's 115, no worries. That is wrong, because even a non-fasting elevation of glucose greater than 85 means that you probably have the beginnings of metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance. I didn't make that up. That was in a journal of endocrinology several years ago. And I I correlated glucose levels that were above 85 with what's called a hemoglobin A1C test. And I found that many people, most people who had a glucose greater than 85 were in fact insulin resistant. So a lot of doctors miss that, why? Well, if they're not endocrinologists, they're not reading the Journal of Endocrinology, okay? Secondly, 
there's a lot of endocrinologists that read it and they're like, okay, fine, next. And they don't keep an eye on it. They don't think about it. They're just not up on things. But those that are up on things know that if you have a glucose greater than 85, even if you ate, you need a hemoglobin A1C test, which is a several week average test, the hemoglobin A1C of your blood sugar. Oh, you know, I want to jump back to cholesterol for a second because I, I just remembered something important I wanted to tell you. We all know about cholesterol being too high, increased cardiovascular risk. But did you know that a cholesterol less than 160 increases risk of cancers? I'll say it again. Cholesterol less than 160. I even have it in my book. But, you know, when, one, when an author quotes himself, you have to be suspect. But it's in other lab books. The reason is because of something I told you before. Cholesterol is an antioxidant. Oxidation can damage your genes, your genetics, and your RNA, even your DNA. And that can be associated with abnormal cellular proliferation, which is the fancy term for cancer. When your cholesterol is less than 160, that means this. Think of your cells, as we talked about earlier, as a circle. And inside of that circle is another circle and your genetic material is in that inner circle. Now those circles are made of lipids, fats, and that includes cholesterol in the membranes. If you don't have enough cholesterol in the inner circle, what's going to happen to the inner circle? It's going to be weakened and it's going to be thinner. When damaging radiation gets into the body or oxidants get into the body or they're made in the body, they normally, some of those, those damaging oxidative chemicals and radiation would be soaked up by the cholesterol in the membranes like a sponge, no harm done. But when the cholesterol is not there as much, when the cholesterol is less than 160, the sponge, there's not as much of a sponge. So the damaging particles get into the nucleus, into the DNA and RNA and damage it. That's why they know that low cholesterol is associated with increased risk of cancers. I've had lots of patients and they'll come in with these low cholesterol numbers and I'll say, so what cancer did you have? And they look at me like I'm, you know, like I have two heads, except most of them will say, how did you know? I didn't even write it on the paperwork. And I explain to them why. So if someone has low cholesterol, that means that their liver is underactive. If someone has low cholesterol, that means their liver is underactive. Why? Because the liver makes cholesterol. Even if you're a vegan, I'm a vegan. I, I, there's very little cholesterol in my diet. The liver still makes all the cholesterol you need and it needs it. It needs it for lots of reasons, for the cell membrane integrity like we just spoke about, as an antioxidant, but also cholesterol makes very important hormones like pregnenolone, which is a pro-anabolic building up hormone and pre- progesterone. And then the next one down the list, so it starts off that cholesterol makes pregnenolone, progesterone, then testosterone. Testosterone makes the adrenal hormone DHEA and testosterone also makes three forms of estrogen, estrone, which is E1, estradiol, E2, and estriol, E3. So if you have low levels of cholesterol, you're going to have problems with a lot of hormones and a lot of organs straight down the line. And you may not know this until it happens, and it may, they may occur as problems over the course of years, even though they were all caused by something going on right now. Okay, let's talk about one more test. The MCV, and if you don't know what that is, it's on your lab work. If you go back to your lab work, you'll see MCV. You want this number not to be greater than 100. Mean corpuscular volume, MCV. That means the average size of your red corpuscle, the mean corpuscular volume, if you're on the high end of normal or just high, that means your red blood cells are too big. Or... It could mean that your red blood cells are sticking together 
And when a bunch of cells stick together and they go through these automated counters in the labs, you know, if you've got five cells sticking together as a clump, they'll measure it like one large cell, but it's not. So again, you have to know how to read these tests to distinguish these things because the results that you see on tests sometimes are not what they seem to be. Okay, so if you, have a, if you do, though, have large red blood cells, which a, a trained nutritional person who knows how to read lab, works, lab work can tell you, you probably need, first of all, your cholesterol might be high, so you look at that. If it's not, okay. The most common other reason is a folic acid deficiency. We're talking now about why would your red blood cells be too large? Folic acid deficiency, a B12 deficiency, a B6 deficiency, or a stomach acid deficiency, or it may be all of those. And it's important to fix the cell's size because red blood cells that are too big, they usually don't live as long. They do not manage oxygen, carbon dioxide exchange, usually ideally well. And they're heavier. They make the blood heavier. The technical term is more viscous. And that means it's the cardiovascular strain for your blood to push around these big, thick, sticky cells. So also having an elevated or high normal MCV, mean corpuscular volume, could mean that you also need fatty acids like omega-3s, either from probably not from flax for a variety of reasons, but from fish, uh, fish oil that has had the mercury uh, removed because the omega-3s help to prevent some of the stickiness and reduce the thickness of the blood. So I've given you some, I think a wide breadth of knowledge really. I mean, and the way that I'm speaking with you now, quite frankly, is exactly how I'd explain these tests when I do professional level seminars because I believe to, uh, in respecting a person's intelligence. If some of you feel that maybe this information was a little bit extreme or maybe it was a, it was a lot to, you know, to take in, I would invite you to listen again to the show, particularly if you really want to learn it. You know, when people really want to learn something, they'll take a course or something and they might have to read a textbook or a chapter or listen to something several times. This is one of those things. It's one of those things. I would also ask you to uh, go to my website again at intmedny.com and look in the at the blog section and you'll see a ton of radio shows and just look for all the other ones on how to read laboratory tests and you're going to get a lot of information. I mean, if you know what's, the, what's in the content of the shows that I've done, you will know more than... of health professionals reading blood that are uh, primary healthcare providers and certainly holistic providers. That's in my opinion and based on my experience. Of course, there are exceptions to every rule. Um, If you want to work with me, if you want to get your blood and health in order, I can work with you at a distance or in person. Just call me at 914-552-1442, 914-552. 1442. And keep the concepts for the shows coming, please. I really appreciate them. And if you want to get a copy of my blood detective a questionnaire to assess your health, um, just email me at the following email. It's info at blooddetective.com. So I'll say, say that again. That's info at blooddetective.com. The website is intmedny.com. Under the blog of the shows, then you'll see videos, and then you, there's a search bar on the home page. There's a ton of content. My person who manages my website recently said to me, he says, you have more content than, than every hospital I've ever seen managing their websites. So there's a ton of stuff I've been piling into that <laughs> on that um, website over the last 29 years. So again, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, You've been listening to Ask the Blood Detective. My name is Dr. Michael Wald, and I'll talk to you all soon. Health and happiness. Bye-bye.
have done.